0: to Start Canada Podcast, where we interview startup founders, innovators, and thought leaders from the heart of Canada who are challenging the status quo, scaling their business, and bringing new ideas to life. Tune in with me, your host, Margot Miller, to hear firsthand exactly how they did it. Start Canada Podcast is powered by the Manitoba Technology Accelerator and Tech Manitoba and sponsored by Scotiabank. In this episode coming up, we speak with Cheryl Zeeland, the founder and CEO of Cranked Energy Bars, a protein bar company started in a home kitchen and now carried by over a hundred Manitoba retailers and set right now for national expansion. Cheryl was first a chartered professional accountant who was always set on living a healthy, balanced lifestyle. But she found the choice of energy bars on the market left much to be desired. So, after a three-year process, 72 bad trays of bars, having three kids of her own, and a lot of perseverance, she's speaking with us today about not only the business, but about her journey and their focus along the way of supporting the community. If you're starting a food-based business from your home kitchen, or you want to learn to build your brand, tune into this episode for tips from Cheryl Zeeland, the founder of Cranked Energy Bars. Cheryl, welcome to Start Canada Podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited.
0: It's beautiful here. We're excited to have you. It's fun, isn't it? It, It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So... Start us off. Tell us a little more about your journey. Take us back maybe to when you started the business, if you can remember. Probably feels like dog years. Okay, so I say we established in
1: 2014, but I mean, we got a reverse three years before that when I just had my twin boys and I had a four-year-old at home and I was tinkering around the kitchen, trying to make some energy bars. Cause like you said, the stuff on the market wasn't that great. You know, it was filled with chemicals. I didn't feel good after I ate them. I really liked energy bars. They were great for grab and go. And like being a new mom again, I was super busy, but, um, it took like 72 bad trays. And I say that cause it was about three years and I'd make like one batch a month. And I, like tinker around. we try, you know, adding a little bit of this and then taking out some of this and just starting really from scratch and really wanting to stay within certain amount of protein and carbs and fat and all that. And so 72 trays literally went in the garbage because they were unedible. Protein bars are really hard to make. Um, they they come out chalky quite a bit. Okay, Texture's hard. Um, I wanted something filling, but I wanted something that tasted really good. I mean, we like to eat food that like tastes good. It should be an experience. Right. And so, um, I was super busy with the kids and made this batch and put it in the fridge and thought it would get thrown out because nobody's going to touch it. And by the end of the week it was gone. And I said to my husband, was that any good? And he's like, Oh, it was great. And so, you know, you just start talking to people and sharing, you know, if, if you're at home and you're starting a, like a food based company, For me, it wasn't anything I really wanted to start. It was just kind of natural. But I would share it with friends, family, and they loved it. And I started to think maybe there was a market for something um, that was fresh when in the fridge. Because there was nothing really in the fridge at the time. And we're talking like six eight years ago when this started.
0: Right. Interesting. And I like that you said that you wanted that food should be an experience. Mm -hmm. I think I think that way, too. But then I certainly don't expect that from things like energy bars. Right. So you were kind of changing the market a little bit.
1: Trailblazing, not intentionally. (laughs) Right. I just really thought energy bars tasted terrible from like When I was young, when I'd start eating them at 17, everything was hard as a rock, tasted terrible. There was
0: like an aftertaste,
1: right? I feel like that's
0: what I'm scared. I was scared of energy bars for a very long time because I remember feeling sick from an aftertaste.
1: Yeah. And it's the sugar alcohols. It's all the stuff in there that's not real food that gives it shelf life, years and years of shelf life, right? And so we are changing it where we're in the fridge. We like an expiry date. We're like, yeah, we expire in six weeks. You got to keep it in the fridge. It's not something you can throw in your bag and then forget about because it's going to go soft and the peanut butter oils are going to separate. But we like that. And, you know, six years ago when we kind of ventured out and got a commercial kitchen and started talking to retailers and whatnot, nobody had anything in the fridge. It was very risky. And that's what everyone said to us. You know, that's really risky. I don't know if it's going to sell because everything's usually on the shelf. This is a lot more work. It's a lot more restocking. It's a lot more work on our end to produce fresh product. Right. So six years ago, I mean, I'm a CPA. I actually didn't know what I was getting into. I had no concept. I just created this bar. It tasted really good. Friends and family in your little circle were receiving it very well. And then Winnipeg, Manitoba is such a sharing community. You know, I get random texts from people saying... My friend gave me some of this bar. It's so good. You know, are they going to be sold anywhere? And then you just start to think, well, maybe it could go further. And do I want it to go further? At the time, I was um, facilitating accounting and finance for the school of business, CPA school of business from home. I had three small children. It wasn't going to be much more of a
0: side hustle. And it just kind of took off. Like, so do you feel like it's been a natural evolution to today yeah. then? Just like slow, regular growth mm-hmm. kind of thing. You've to obviously change a lot of things and do a lot. But yeah. it's been, you didn't necessarily like jump in with two feet all of a sudden no, one day. No, I couldn't. I had
1: twins that were three at the time where we actually went to retail and then an eight-year-old. And I've always put being a mom priority and being home for them. So I would not start anything on cranked energy until they went to school, which was nine in the morning. And then I would make sure I was home by 3.30 every single day. So there's only a certain amount of stuff you can get done in that time. And when you're producing the bars yourself at the time and trying to do sales and the accounting and all that, there's not a ton of growth. I, I'm an older entrepreneur in terms of where when I started and I'm a, a slow entrepreneur. I don't jump in fast and spend a ton of money. We grew this organically. I invested every single penny. I got right back into the company and still taught accounting and finance on the side. Mm-hmm. Up until two years ago, I was still facilitating because it's consistent steady income and I think a lot of people I'm not really into risk that well. Like sure. I'm risk averse. Yeah. And I like the steadiness of having an income on the side because there are kids at stake and my spouse and yeah. and family life in general. Um but then at some point you have to make the full jump and say, I, I can't be doing this kind of half all the time.
0: Yeah, because what would you say to the argument? Some people do say, like if you're not both feet in the business, like it's really hard to get it to go anywhere. Did you run totally into that true. at certain points along the way?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think part of it was fear based. I I I didn't know if this is what I wanted to do. I'm a CPA. I love numbers. I love that side kind of business. And this is completely different. Do I want to grow a company with a fresh food product and have staff, um, like a big team, look for commercial kitchen space, and then the whole food industry in general? I'm, I mean, you're jumping into something that has a lot of regulations and rules, and you're dealing with a wide variety of customers and wanting to get into other provinces. So what you build in Manitoba... It doesn't always translate into other provinces as well. And that's something that you have to be conscious of as, as well. I feel like we live in a bit of a bubble here in terms of everyone is so supportive um, of small business, of entrepreneurs, female entrepreneurs. We all support each other. Will that translate in other provinces, right? right? Like, have I grown this here easily with a great product and a great, you know, attitude and hard work? But can we do it in other provinces? So
0: So it depends like early on, if you think you're going to want to be bigger than just the province, think about some of those things and some of the risks like earlier or some of the differences that you might have to change in what you're doing. And I
1: was old. I mean, I was older in terms of I was, I had three kids to consider, right? And I'm I'm not going back to an office job. There's no pension. Right. a lot of stuff when you're starting something, I was in my late 30s at the time versus fresh out of university and kind of doing a corporate job and a side hustle. You have time. You have time to make mistakes. You have time to like get that money back in terms of, I did not, you know, house and a mortgage and three kids and cars. And that is really scary for me, at least. I didn't want to over leverage anything.
0: Right. Do you feel like you've changed over the years in your tolerance for risk or in just learning that it's okay to fail along the way like how do you feel like you've actually changed in those regards I've become more confident in our product for sure um, starting out food products difficult you
1: can't please everyone and I've told the story before I was standing at a golf tournament sampling early early on and some one came by and took a bite and then spit it out like gagged on it spit it out in front of everyone and I was mortified. I went home. I cried. But that I'm now, it's not for everyone. And I fully understand that. Coconut is in all our bars. There's a texture issue with a lot of people. Mm. Peanut butter, a lot of people can't have. Some people don't like cranberries. Cinnamon's an allergy for some. And I don't take it personally anymore. If you love our product, we want to have you as one of our customers. And we're so grateful. If it's not for you, there's other products available that can be good for you as well. And hopefully you choose local and we can help guide you the local way. But yeah. it doesn't affect me anymore. So I, I think I become more confident in our product, our shelf life, um, what we do, the the flavors we create, everything has a reason and we're very strategic and meticulous on the bars mm-hmm. that we put out now in the market. Yeah. I mean, that all sounds really positive. It is, but it's a lot of work and a lot of stress. Yep. Um, And I I think a lot, I talk about the stresses all the time with people in terms of some, someone said the other day, you make it look so easy, but you know what? I go home and I'm exhausted and I'm freaking out about a lot of stuff. And um, I recently did kind of a strengths analysis and it was pretty much shown to me that I'm like an empathetic feeler. I relate. And I think that's why everything hits me so hard. The good things, the bad
0: things, the stresses, I feel everything. I have people in my life that are like the literal opposite. And sometimes I look at them and think, what must be easier to live that life? (laughs) Right? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) To not feel at all. (laughs) I I feel like if I had more strategy, like if I thought of
1: things as more like business strategy all the time, maybe I wouldn't be always stressing about everything
0: but But pros and cons right because you probably were able to grow your business in a mm -hmm. province and city like ours because of the relationships and the connections you made that do take the emotional side and the empathy side and the like true desire for connection and not just business and numbers at the end of the day right
1: if you think about it six years ago we didn't have like instagram wasn't really that popular right so you can't just nowadays it feels like you can put a thing on instagram and say you have something starting and a product and then you know get a few influencers or do a countdown, get a few people to try it, post mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Six years ago, I mean, I was peddling golf tournaments, pop-ups with like two people, you know, you never right. knew. And I said yes to everything. I would be gone all weekend, all the time. Your sampling. physical expectation of where you were was mm-hmm. was a big burden
0: yeah. compared to now.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, now it just seems to be a little bit, everyone goes to Instagram to look for things and people are tagging and everything's more accessible now back then we had facebook and events you had to actually show up mm-hmm. at all these events and mm-hmm. talk to people and sample product all the time and that part i feel especially in the last year obviously is gone but it feels like that part has kind of gone missing a bit yeah. you know
0: so i miss that yeah the well and certainly we miss it right now the in person mm-hmm. connection as we are recording this during a pandemic <laughs> um has the I'm curious about the journey for you from Home Kitchen to when you mentioned you went into a public space, right. a, a community kitchen, or, or yep. you. Do, what did you do? Did you lease a space, Cheryl?
1: Yes, uh, so it's illegal to make product out of your house. Yes, hopefully that was when you were that. just learning the ropes <laughs> yes, and perfecting so, your recipes. But hopefully everyone out there does know that. It's so worth getting a commercial kitchen, like renting one, and there's lots that you can. We rented one for a few years, and I would drop my twins off at kindergarten. I'd go to the kitchen. I'd make the bars. I'd go back at lunch. I'd pick them up. I'd bring them back to the rental kitchen. They'd sit and watch me as I cut the bars, package the bars. And then I had to deliver them. Because I had nowhere to put them. I'd nowhere to to them st- where at that point. We had, I had customers, so I would meet them. I, the twins would come with me, the four-year-old. I mean, I met professional hockey players in Dollarama parking lots. I've gone up to corporate. <laughs> it was corporate. a true community effort at that yeah, point. Yeah, and I'm like yelling at the kids, just don't say anything. Be quiet. Let me, we'd go upstairs to corporations and deliver stuff. It was a lot
0: of work. I feel tired just listening. It was tiring, yeah. <laughs>
1: But you know what? That's what you have to do at the start. You have to grind it out in a rental kitchen, you know, see if you have to test the market. What if mm-hmm. what if no one bought them? And then you're in a space you're leasing for X amount of years. And that's not, for me, that's not smart business. So once we knew that we had a steady amount of customers, um, I was able to kind of visit retailers, get them to try the product, uh, do small orders, see if they sold kind of grow our Instagram, grow our Facebook, go to events, peddle the bars, really just start building that brand where
0: people understood what we did. Throughout all that, and as you're building the brand, were testimonials important? Did you ever have anyone formally taste the bars, like like tasters of some kind, or chefs, or what's that process like at the beginning? Is any of that... I didn't. I'm sure there are, but you gotta
1: remember from like nine to three was what I had, and then I was full-on mom mode, and everything else kind of just the amount I could do. I was just trying to get ahead on sales. I wanted sales. We can reinvest the money. I wanted my own kitchen. It was so much work not having anywhere to store ingredients, right? Because you're caught between your Mm. home and a a rental kitchen. And I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs understand that when they just don't have any efficiencies, there's nowhere to store stuff. You can only make so much product. So I really had this goal. I want my own kitchen. I want my own kitchen. I'm working towards having my own kitchen. So because then you could store in the same space yeah and have a little storefront and then really settle down into our brand and figure out get a team and figure out who we are as a company Mm -hmm. and that's hard to do when you're running your head off like with small children all the time it's not efficient I can only imagine
0: no um Speaking of, before you mentioned a little bit about the fact that it is illegal to make food in your home kitchen and sell Mm -hmm. it out of there, that's really good to sometimes get these rules across on the show. (laughs) Just Um, put
1: it out there. I'm curious about,
0: so you, if you make something in a rental kitchen Mm -hmm. and then you're immediately bringing it to a customer, Mm -hmm. is there any part of that process where the Canadian Food Inspection Agency could get involved, wants to sometimes, that you should get approvals first? Like, give us a little bit of that process. Well, you'll be inspected even at a rental kitchen. So
1: they'll inspect like your food handling, your transportation, like what you're transporting stuff in. So um, that's all discussed. So having a good relationship with your um, inspector is key. They want the best for you. And they're always, if they find things that you're not doing properly, that's that's just to better your yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So I learned a ton our first inspection. I mean, they are thorough. If we're low risk, and I think it's a four-hour assessment. Uh, yeah,
0: it's at least 4 hours. We Did go through the everything. Community Kitchen help you to connect with CFIA. Did you have to do that yourself and set up your own appointment? Actually that once we registered the business, the health inspector just called. Okay. And said
1: we're coming. Mm-hmm. So, I think everyone should be aware if they have a food business, once you register, which you should, register your business, just be prepared and be open. I think when you're open and honest about it and, and want them to come check the stuff out, um, that's when you get the best relationships with them. So, Mm -hmm. and they like to drop in every, nothing's scheduled. So, (laughs) right. They just show up. Yeah. Right. And that's, so it keeps you on your toes. You need to be food handling properly and be up and up, especially with food. Nobody wants anything wrong with food as a company. It's a liability and we have liability insurance and whatnot. Every food company does, but just knowing that your customer might have the potential to get sick on your product should be enough fear. Right. To make sure you do everything right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Tell us about some of the the lessons you did learn along the way, because you mentioned there when you had your first inspection, you learned a lot. Yeah. I think you also had an experience with co-packing that wasn't ideal. So so tell us a bit about some of those lessons, food specific.
1: Well, in my head, I thought I'm spending all my time in the kitchen. This is ridiculous. I'm not able to grow my business, I'm going to get a co-packer. And so we, which is what for people that don't know. A co-packer is when someone else is making your product for you. Um so you're paying them per piece, we are paying them per bar to blend and package and label it and
0: you give them it, your recipe, they they know everything. They just
1: do it. Yeah. Well, for them, they knew half. No one actually knows our full recipe because uh, I still do all the dry prep, but they would um, do the the wet ingredients and and roll it and do all that other stuff for me. And I thought, well, this is going to be great. Yeah. You can focus on the business side. Yes. Except the co-packer didn't have the same production team every time. So there was a bit of turnover there and retraining and bars weren't coming out great. It's a handmade bar. It's very difficult to train. I thought it was easy because it was easy for me. And when I tried to translate that and really get them to understand what the dough was supposed to look and feel like, it didn't translate well. And they were driven by peace piece. They wanted to get X amount of bars made for me. So they were piece driven and not actually looking at the quality of the bars. Mm-hmm. And that was on me. And so I would come in to pick up my bars and half of them weren't sellable. And it was disappointing because you still have to pay the bill. And then you, I was spending more time in there for a good year. I was spending a lot of time blending with them and it was ridiculous. And still paying the bill. And still paying right. per, per piece. But I didn't want to lose any customers over the fact that the quality wasn't there. So I learned at that moment, it was great though, because I understood that I needed my own kitchen. I thought maybe at some point, it could just be co-packed the whole time. And I could be this business owner, had a co-packer making the bars and I would do the business. And that quickly became clear that I have to get my own kitchen, my own team, a team that's invested in the quality of our bars and our product and grow it that way. And that scared me the most because managing a team of people uh, is probably the most stressful. And I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs will agree that like getting the right team in place who values your product and wants to work really hard and consistent. It's hard. It's really hard.
0: Yeah. Cause you're so invested. It's your baby. It's oh, your it's fourth your baby, baby in your case. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's my fourth child. <laughs> right? Why,
1: you know, why doesn't everyone take pride in the way the bars look all the time, quality control. Mm-hmm. I feel like now um, we've been in our new space uh, almost two years, and I've got a great team in in place there, and we're growing, and I feel like I have good resources and tools to hire the right people now. Mm-hmm. So I think as an entrepreneur, i've I've learned myself what I'm looking for and being confident that that's what we need. How know? do you
0: do your hiring now? Do you have a, a good tip? Oh, no, we're terrible hires if any <laughs> if everyone just agrees
1: that, like, we're not good at hiring. I hire from the heart, right? which is not great either. right? So um, there's a lot of consultants. I have one right now that's helping me with our next hire because it's one of the most important positions in the kitchen. Uh, I want to be removed from it. So you can, she's vetting the resumes and... Um, talking to them on the phone, Zoom calling, and then we'll present me with two or three candidates. Yeah, you'll be kind of like the last line of defense. And I think that's worth every penny for me because I'm really trying with our growth of our company and the team we have in place and my kids. I mean, and we're in a pandemic still. That's just not time well spent for me. It Mm -hmm. would stress me out. I'm not a very good HR person because I love everyone. I think everyone can be trained to do a job and whatnot. But having someone who specifically sees certain qualities that you need Mm -hmm. to grow, Mm -hmm. and I think that's important. And knowing when to outsource that stuff is very, very key.
0: Yeah. Okay. And we, you know, I heard recently about some companies that do culture interviews only. So they have their regular interviews, like say with a screener and then Mm -hmm. with you in this case, and then the final interview is actually a peer or someone else in the organization who strictly interviews, and it could be you as well, Mm -hmm. but strictly interviews that last one, just based on culture to see if they're a fit for your style of management, your workplace. I thought that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. And depending on your style of company, you know, some already have their values written out of the company or the Mm -hmm. culture written out, like it's on the website, you can find it, that kind of so it's really just like playing against that and seeing if in fact they'll be successful because you can have all the skills, but sometimes if you're not mm-hmm. a fit for like the wit, the style it's of true. work, especially if you are a smaller company that is still growing, mm-hmm. there is a different energy in that kind of organization. Mm-hmm. And if someone's not used to that, they might be frustrated. So I thought that was a really does, neat tip. I like that. Yeah.
1: yeah. And we work very closely in the kitchen. It's only five people and everyone's, you know, got the same goal to get bars made, kitchen sanitized every single day and everyone just kind of helps out where they need to. There's specific job descriptions and roles, but in the end, I mean, I'm in the washroom scrubbing toilets too, right? And yeah. I'm merchandising, whatever. I'm in the kitchen. I'm in the office. Everyone needs to be able to pitch in when they can. And yeah. then we have our big community piece that's very important to us as well. So a, a love of community and giving back is very culturally key for us as well.
0: Right, yeah. So that the, for you, those are some pretty clear, distinctive yes. points there. Yeah. Cheryl, what was that difference when you finally got your own kitchen, your own space? Like. Oh so great tell us about that moment oh my goodness so we've been looking for a while and it
1: actually was very hard the stepping stone from a commercial kitchen a rental to a, your actual space I think is probably one of the hardest things because financially everything financially um finding space you know 12 to 1500 square feet is enough for was enough for us but there's not a lot of that in the city right you want to be in a certain area. For us, choosing to be in Polo Park's area was key because I feel everyone goes centrally, right? Whether you live in the West End, the North End, or the East End, South End, you find yourself at Polo Park, right? In that whole area. So I wanted to be able to be central enough that we could pull from all the areas. And I knew it we would be a destination for a lot of people. While as we were growing, you know, we had one retailer and two retailers, but we had our storefront with a commercial kitchen attached to it with certain hours. You could come get bars fresh from our storefront. And that was exciting for me. It was like Mm. this little baby of mine that I could kind of merchandise and grow and have the product on site. That was a really, but we grew out of it in two years. We had a three-year lease, grew out of it in two. Okay. Had to find a sublease for the last year. And then the jump from 1,200 square feet to what we have now is 4,000 was easier to find. There's a lot more commercial real estate, it seems, in the 3,000, 4,000 and above. Um, But that 1,200, that stepping stone is really hard. I think that's why a lot of people end up staying in those rental kitchens for extended periods of time because it's a big investment. You're doing a lease payment now, um, investing in more equipment, whatnot. that, That step is is scary and requires a little bit of investment. Yep. And then from there the, the next step again you invest more but it's not as scary. You've done it once. We've set up two commercial kitchens now. I could do another one with no fear. Like I know what to do. Every single time you do it you learn, you learn what you need, what you don't need, yep. how to do it efficiently. Yeah.
0: Looking back now, were there resources that you maybe could have tapped into doing that step from a commercial kitchen into your own space? Like, did anyone guide you? Was there anywhere you could have gone or that you know about now? <sighs> oh, there's tons of grant
1: money out there. And I know you had Michelle from Wolseley. She was on. great that episode with Michelle and Caroline she talking about really grants. good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was just never... I mean, look, I say it all the time. I was in the throes of motherhood with small children. There wasn't a lot of time to spend on that. And yeah, looking just, up and doing that research is yeah, a different piece. Mm-hmm. I, if someone had told me, that would have been great. And I think that's why it's important now to talk. And I think with Instagram and social media, there's way more access. Do that information. Right. If you're, you if you're using keyword
0: it. searches, looking yeah. for stuff, following the right people who do share those resources. Exactly. Yeah. A lot um, of the supporters of our show mm-hmm. are people who yeah. have those resources and that's why they're, you know, that's why they support us at the same time because yeah. there's they have amazing things to help business mm-hmm. owners but you do have to look up and find them.
1: You do. And you have to go to the Enterprise Center and Women in Business. There's all these great groups that if you can get, get tapped into and really talk to them, mm. I just was so far removed from being able to do any of that stuff. For me, the only thing was to reinvest every penny and just keep grinding and grinding. And I just wanted a company that was not taking on super leverage. I didn't want to have a whole bunch of loans to be paying off In in case the bars didn't go, in case at some point people stopped eating them or like you never know, right?
0: Especially when you have everyone in the back of your ear telling you that you have (laughs) a perishable item and it's risky. Mm. And And
1: it's a competitive space. And what are you doing? And oh my God, rolling the eyes. Like what now? What's Cheryl doing now? It's the serial entrepreneur thing that a lot of us get when you're just constantly creating and and feeling like you want to start a business and, and...
0: I think that in and of itself is an interesting conversation, Cheryl. Because I think as an entrepreneur, you do like you have to believe in yourself. And sometimes, mm-hmm. even when you do, there's people around you kind of going, "Why'd you do it that way? Why'd you do it that oh, way?" Yeah. Even like you know the question about grants just now. It's like, yeah, sure, I would have loved to leverage grants. I just had 18 other things I was worried about, and I didn't yeah. do it. Right? Um, fell off the list. It just didn't get right. Done. Exactly. Still, I've never taken
1: a grant. Like I, I still don't know where to get them. Yeah. I mean.
0: We can chat after the show show. Yeah,
1: seriously, <laughs> yeah. need a whole list. And, yeah. and also a lot of the grants are for certain age groups as well. And yes. I do fall out of that. Let's be honest. You know, I'm like over 45 now and a lot mm-hmm. of that doesn't come into play. So I'm sure there's lots available, but the ones that you see being promoted and whatnot are for, um, they do technically have restrictions. They yeah. do, they have restrictions mm-hmm. and whatnot. And so we're at a point now where we've just worked so hard, um, that we're just able to fund it through our own company and just keep keep doing it that way
0: yeah yeah okay Cheryl at this Mm -hmm. fun point in time we are going to jump into our speed round if you're ready (laughs) so just tell us what first comes to mind okay ready okay (laughs) describe yourself in a word or two fun good what motivates you creativity what keeps you up at night Orders that haven't been filled. <laughs> <It's> terrible. <laughs> Who has been the most influential person for you? My dad. My mom and dad. My parents are fantastic. Oh, mine too. What is one thing in business that you are so happy you did? I took a chance. What's most important for your mental health? Oh, I haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> I haven't. (laughs) It's
1: Yeah. Um, Probably, probably working out, getting my workouts in is very important. That's a good one.
0: What's one thing you were wrong about? That I didn't think I could do the food industry. How do you continue to learn and grow?
1: Taking chances, pushing the boundaries and making mistakes. Where are you
0: in 10 years? Oh, goodness. In every single province in Canada. That's a good goal. What does being a leader mean to you?
1: Being respectful of your team and
0: being good to your community. That's it. That's the speed round. Oh, you were really so good. good, Cheryl. You were really fast. Oh, that? oh yeah. I was. Some okay. people really have a hard time with the speed part of the oh, speed really? round. Yeah. No. You were great. Um, you had some interesting answers in there. I did. Yeah. Um, making mistakes. Well, I made a lot
1: of them. What have you learned? Well, there's always a solution. I think I tell my kids this all the time, too, when they're frustrated with something. It's not that bad. You'll figure it out. There is a solution. I mean, you got to kind of sit in it for a bit. I made some dumb mistakes, too. It costs a lot of money. Um... Those are the worst kind in they business. Are. yeah. <laughs> or, you know, missed opportunities. Uh, I have a pretty good mm-hmm. in, like, I'm very intuitive. I think that's why it takes a long time for me to make decisions. I mean, it took me like three years to buy a machine. I just didn't think we needed it. It wasn't the right time. I didn't want to leverage ourselves. And then all of a sudden I was like, we need it. Let's do it. That's how I operate. It frustrates my husband like crazy. But Like it's a hold and then go. Oh yeah, it's like and he's like I've been talking about this for a year, Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it's like I need this tomorrow. Mm -hmm. We cannot have, we need it. Yeah, so I made lots of mistakes. The co-packer was a mistake, but I learned through it. And they were a great company too. So there's always that relationship there. Mm-hmm. That if it it was if it was the right fit for someone else, I would recommend it. Right. But for us, we lost a ton of money and a ton of product, and I had to be okay with doing it myself. And I think that was a confidence issue early on in the start that I just wasn't sure. Everyone was telling me it's a risky product. Nobody's gonna eat fresh energy bars. Like, it's just not going to happen for you.
0: Did you try and validate that in some way? Validate the market when people were telling you that? Or did well, you, people were just asking were you for good. it. And so
1: it grew from there. Yeah, like we word of mouth spread really fast with our bars. And we got in a couple of retailers. Abby at the Green Carrot was one of the first retailers who took our bars. And they were selling really well. Um, and we just kind of stuck to that niche opportunities for quite a while until we were able to grow enough to approach um, Sobeys, Safeways. But you need to have the back end in place, right? If I had tried to do that early on, it would have flopped. We wouldn't have had enough bars. It was just me making it. I was busy right, with the kids, okay. right? So you have to be very, While well, we want this all to happen really quickly. If you don't have the back end and your kitchen in place, then you will absolutely be destroyed.
0: Can you give us the Cole's notes of how does it work for fulfillment when you are in a bigger chain, like a Safeway Sobeys? What are the expectations and relationship typically?
1: Well, they're all different depending on who they're owned by, whether it's private or corporate, but in Manitoba, um, they all order separately so they put in we have a sales manager now which was a huge thing for me to hire Mm. I say this all the time I in I think it was October 2019 I fired myself from every job at Cranked Energy that didn't bring me joy anymore.
0: Wow good for you that would have been a moment. It was hard
1: yes it was very hard to do but I realized a lot of the things I was doing was creating serious havoc in my body, in my mind, in my stress levels. And it's just because I didn't enjoy them. I didn't enjoy the sales aspect of it. I like when people love our bars and want to order them, but to actually cold call and manage accounts and constantly be in that space of making sure everyone's okay was, it was just not, it was too much for me. So Mm. hiring a sales director was One of the best decisions and she's so great and she's got the same values as us and she loves all our customers. She takes such good care of them. So orders come in through her. She sends it into the kitchen. We put it up on the production board and then all the bars are blended fresh. So you do not usually get bars that are going to expire tomorrow because chances are we blended them yesterday and they're going to you tomorrow. And so you have six to 12 weeks now of product which is great. So you're not buying something off the shelf that's expired or close to expiry.
0: How did you first learn how to handle spikes? So let's say Safeway and Sobeys and whoever, whatever stores you're in, smaller stores as well, all come to you on the same day and say, we want a hundred, whatever. And the next week, maybe you don't get that same kind (laughs) of order. Was that difficult for staffing Mm -hmm.
1: for you personally? Oh, all of it. It's still on a daily basis. Nothing's ever the same with ordering because you have customer purchasing patterns are different, right? Mm-hmm. Some yeah. weeks are really busy. You know, Christmas isn't crazy for us where you might think it would be because people are running around. And But now is kind of our busy time where the weather's nice. People are outside more. They don't want to cook all the time. They want grab and go food. Yeah. So we're always managing production. Anything, the, the cool thing at Cranked is we don't waste any of our products. So say if we had a week where we blended way too much product, um, which I hope will never happen, but it has happened before. We've had a couple you know, rounds that won't be sold. Then we donate them. We call a shelter. We call a program. We worked with the Oak Table. So many um, Main Street Project, being able to give them product so we don't waste a lot of food in cranked energy. We find a home for them very quickly.
0: So. Yeah, that's that's a really cool part of your business, actually. And we ta- we briefly mentioned that in your intro today. So let's dig into that a little bit deeper because it sounds to me like when you created Cranked Energy Bars, mm-hmm. right from the beginning, you wanted the community aspect involved yeah. in your business. And, and when we use the word community here, we're talking like yeah. giving back at large yeah. in whatever mm-hmm. way that you can. So tell us about some of those initiatives Mm -hmm. because I know you have some really neat ones that might fly under the radar. Yeah,
1: no, we have so many. And a lot of people see on Instagram the ones we post about. We do a ton of fundraising for charities um, via spin fundraisers. Anytime we can support another small business in terms of the health and wellness space too. Mm-hmm. Um, Collaborations that you're yes, doing? we're yeah. on it to raise money for a charity, spin fundraisers, walks, um, CrossFit, anything that involves movement, we are happy to do it. Um, we've collaborated with so many and raised a ton of money. But, you know, one of the programs that we don't talk about is if you are going through treatment, um, chemo or or any type of health concerns and you're having trouble eating. We do offer free bite-sized samples delivered to your door while in treatment or, or um, unable to kind of get the nutrition in. We just have such a great value system at Crank that healthy food should be accessible to everyone. And we fully understand our bar is a premium bar. It's a little more expensive because of the ingredients. And that it should be available to people, especially those who are really, really needing the nutrition in it. So we are constantly searching for partnerships, collaborations where we're able to, to donate, to give um, anything off of our line that has come off. The, the machine likes to cut bars in half sometimes. And so we can't sell them, but we can cut them again. And there's <laughs> sample pieces. We, the, the team's always laughing in the kitchen because we're always we've got all these samples and where are we going to give them? Who, who can we give them to? We've thrown in, when the gyms opened, reopened after the code red was lifted, we threw in sample boxes to all the gyms that were restocking our product again as a thank you. We're so happy you're open again. Yes. There's always opportunity if you have a food product to give, right? Just Mm. make a little extra stuff that's not perfect can be donated as long as it's, you know, edible, obviously. But we have so many programs and we're always looking for more, um, you know, getting getting our bars up north would be such a dream for me in terms of the nutritional needs in our northern communities. Mm-hmm. And I know that's really hard. Shipping is crazy. It's so hard and expensive. But I, I know that when those kids have come down for Mount Tobe Marathon and whatnot. And we've given them bars. They cry, like they've cried on their way back, because they're not going to be able to get our bars anymore where they live. And that's like heartbreaking. We want, we want kids, especially in sports, um, in remote communities, to have access to quality, quality food. You mm-hmm. know, so.
0: Your journey with giving back to community—it sounds like you're just scratching the surface. And the things you're able no, to tell us right now—it's now. it's, it's really amazing. <laughs> yeah. There's, I think, it's maybe hopefully, it seems as though it's becoming more prominent for businesses mm-hmm. to think of even large ones or ones that are on the precipice of becoming really big. Mm-hmm. Talking about you know corporate social enterprise and all those like which maybe are buzzwords in some circles, but we're really like giving back to the community as part of your brand core mm-hmm. essence is, I think, yeah. something that that. We can, we've, we're we learning how to all do a little bit better. Yep. Do you have tips for someone though, who maybe like didn't already set up their business from the start like that, wants to give back, but just is looking at it going, uh, this is me giving stuff away or using more of my time and I'm already so limited on time like mm-hmm. what you went through as you were right. growing your business. Right. How did you still prioritize it? I think, and I just
1: spoke um, at a conference about this in terms of how to get back at every stage of your business. I think it, if you really do a little bit of soul searching in terms of what you're passionate about, it never becomes an an issue. For for me, my mom taught in um, some of the inner city schools. And so I grew up kind of being part of that community and seeing the the needs of these kids on a, on a regular basis from when I was little. So I always knew that they needed more. They needed, you know, I, if I can give back, I will give back to that specific group. And if everyone kind of just thinks of what they're passionate about, whether it's in, you know, certain diseases or youth or sports, there's so many opportunities, but you just have to reach out. You have to, to, put yourself out there and say, I want to help. And everyone thinks it's product or money that needs to be donated. But I talk all the time, time is like your biggest resource, right? Volunteering um, for and and developing those relationships are Mm. so key. And like you said, it's part of your brand now. And I think a lot of customers want to invest in companies that do have purpose. It's Mm -hmm. not all about profits.
0: I was reading a report recently actually about millennials and how, and they're our biggest piece of our workforce mm-hmm. right now. And that I think it was, and I, and this is, you know, bad to say on the show, cause I'm going to have a quote now, but <laughs> it was, it was over 75% of mm-hmm. millennials wanted, preferred working at a company where it matched their values because they had an arm that was involved in yeah. some kind of philanthropy, giving back to the community, or yeah. that it matched the values that were of mm-hmm. giving back in some way. I think giving back is like
1: a tangible feeling. Like, you know, you can't quite put your finger on it, but you always feel good. And I think that's what we do as a company is giving back. It makes everyone feel good. It's you're helping and how can you not want to do that? And so being part of a company, our entire team is always excited because I'm always excited about what we're doing and they jump on board and how can we help and donating their time too. And I think that comes from the top. I'm leading by example, in terms of they see that we we make sure every single piece of product in our shop goes out the door, whether right. it's to customers, retailers, or charities. And that's very important to them. So they see something there. They're what do you want us to do with it? Where's it going to go? That's their first question. It's not going in the garbage. It's not mm-hmm. going home with them kind of thing. And that's something they learned through the leader.
0: Yeah. And you've instilled that in them. Because yeah. if it's an afterthought for you, it's going to be an afterthought for yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. So it's their first thing now. It's just, part of, of who they
1: are. And I think that's the team that we've built there. And that's taken this long to really get the right team in there because you have to have those who support your crazy ideas and are going to spend extra time staying after work to get certain things done mm-hmm. for the community that we have, the initiatives that we have going.
0: You know how you, you've kind of mentioned this like fun personality you have. And when I asked you to describe yourself, that was <laughs> the same word, but I think, you know, it seems you have this side to you too. That's like, that's really honest and and, yeah. and deep, and that really like cares and gives back. Mm-hmm. Do you think that any of those particular personality traits have helped you in business specifically? Oh gosh, the honesty one? Yeah. I mean, I don't like
1: to, I was telling you before, you know, only talking about the wins is futile because they usually come after serious losses where you've learned and then are able to grow and become better. And so I try whenever we have, a social media platform to do it, to really engage in that and, and humanize the fact that this entrepreneurship is very difficult. It's very stressful. It's very risky. Um, and it's up and down. And I've spoken about it before. You might have a record month and then Trust me, the next month could tank. Like six years in, you still don't know, right? So you have to always kind of be prepared for that other, you know, shoe's going to drop. But, and be smart about it and celebrate the wins, but also don't be afraid to share the losses either. You know, I, I like when people are more vulnerable and talk about their journey and their experience that, you know, they've lost a ton of product or they made a few bad decisions. We applied for a few grants early on and spent a ton of money applying for them and were turned away on, you know, like, I can't remember what it was. It was literally like an admin thing, Hmm. but you learn, right? You learn that you can't rush the process on things and you have to go through things with a fine tooth comb and like all these things are disappointing but then when we get another another retailer and they're so great, we want to celebrate that too. So yeah. we make sure people know about we're working our butts off to grow this company that started in Manitoba and grow it across this country so they can say, oh my God, Cranked Energy Bars. Yeah. You I know, knew them when. I knew them. That, and they're still made in Manitoba. Yes. Oh my God, that's so cool. And Those are great
0: stories locally, yeah. certainly. Let's talk about that for a minute. So taking your product nationally. Yes. You're on the precipice of this as we speak. Tell us a little bit about that process, that journey. Well, if anyone's followed us for the last six years, we've had this like beautiful,
1: clear packaging that's evolved. So it's food grade packaging now. um, And we sticker, we sticker fronts and we sticker the backs. It's very labor intensive, but that's kind of how we've grown. It's like, it's kind of like an organic grown business where the packaging's clear and whatnot. But in order to expand and go nationally, you have to, you know, up your game a bit. And we knew at some point we were going to have to transition to pre-printed film, right? That's coming off with the the label printed and the UPC printed on it. So kind of what you see on the typical shelf protein bar. right? That process has been years in the making, but we're... so close. I mean,
0: because so you're close. finicky with it or because there is actually some complexity to it? Complexity, money. It's a
1: lot of work for design and film itself, you know, printing. And the food
0: expectations, right? Because there's yeah. there's certain regulations around right? that.
1: Labeling, all that stuff. Um, you're having to pull in consultants to um, make sure your label's correct. You don't want something to go on the shelf and then it's pulled because you're missing sesame seeds as an allergen. I don't anyone doesn't know that, it's considered an allergy. So you have to list it on your um, product now. That's that's newer. So those kinds of things are always coming out where there's changes in the food industry quite often. And and, um, the Food Development Center has great resources and other entrepreneurs. I reach out to other female entrepreneurs all the time about food products and hey, where did you get this done? If you can share, that would be great. Mm -hmm. And that's important too. But We've stuck in this province because a shipping's a pain in the butt, especially in summer. If you think about it, shipping with a perishable eight, item, right? So, we've invested a ton of money in you know, like the HelloFresh thermal lined boxes, right? I have 24 pallets of them coming, right? That's a ten thousand dollar investment. And where do you store
0: those even 24 pallets of boxes?
1: It, originally, how would I? Now we have a warehouse where we can. But it initially... You your how you, you're
0: taking the garage.
1: Right. <laughs> how do you ship something like that, a perishable product outside of your city, or even within Manitoba? I mean, we get hot in the summer. You cannot just take a perishable food product and not have it on ice all the way through. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things are huge projects where when you're still trying to grow a brand and produce and be a mom and all, they just kind of take longer. They right. just take longer. I'm sure with the right money and the right people, it could have gone faster, but I've done this all by myself in terms of sourcing it and building the relationship. So I want the relationship with our suppliers. I want the relationship with our retailers. I want the relationship with everyone that's supplying us and on our team. And that's very important to me. So, Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And you do hear kind of you know, some horror stories along the way, if you don't have those relationships. And even sometimes Mm -hmm. when you still do, Mm -hmm. but at least here, you probably feel like there's more control over that whole process. There is. And I made
1: the the decision to purchase $10,000 worth of liners for a box, which you still have to pay for the box and you still have to pay for shipping. Right. So like those expenses, you can't take on early on. Mm -hmm. You have to have regular sales happening to be able to the cash flow has to be pretty steady to be able to make that kind of purchase. It yeah. doesn't happen overnight. So you have to really be patient and smart and yeah, I feel like now we're finally in a groove where our products really really good, our um supply chains pretty good, it can be better, but it's pretty steady. It wasn't affected too bad by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, ordering is is difficult. I make a lot of mistakes. I'll run out of stuff and expect it to show up the next day. And I haven't figured out there's a five-week lead time on stuff. So there's those stresses where, oh my God, we can't make bars for like three days. Right, That's a huge issue, yeah. right? So those kinds of things, I'm still learning because I'm a CPA. I understand my financials really well, but sometimes the operation side... I'm too busy doing the charity work and like the fun stuff, social media. And I forget that we have no peanut butter. Right. And there's five weeks until we can get it in. So that's always, that's, but you know what the small wins are? We used to go through the tiny little thing of peanut butter And now we just ordered five tons and that'll last us two months, right?
0: Right, and it's exciting, right? To see that order. You're you're spending more and it's scary and there's more risk and all that stuff, but it's also really exciting. It's super exciting. So should we expect to see you in other provinces
1: in the near future? Yeah, we're working um, on our license to get outside of Manitoba. So to be able to sell retail outside of your province, you do need a special license. So that is something to consider when when you launch a food company, you say, you know, expanding across Canada, it's not that easy. You can't just go and do it. Um, There's a lot of regulations and you want to be smart about it. You don't want to, I mean, prove it in your own city first. Really get a good brand and um, base and and test the market in your own city. Winnipeg's a great market for food, isn't it? Aren't we like the fast food test city oh gosh I
0: think we're the test city for a lot of things actually they do say that we're a really interesting market and we're also multicultural and you can make it here
1: because Winnipegers are just so close and so invested that Mm -hmm. they'll tell you I mean someone gagged on our product to spit it out I mean that was a clear indication that was a long time ago Cheryl we are not talking about that
0: person anymore but
1: it was like (laughs) not everything you know you have to be realistic that are, people are honest and that's good. Honesty mm. is very good. And I've learned to accept that. Um, and I laugh at it now and I just say, oh, I don't think our bar is the right bar for you. Right. you know, There's a lot of other options out there yeah. and kind of like, ha ha, that's, you know, <laughs> yeah. but at the start, I, I
0: probably cried all night over, oh, yeah, over that kind of yeah. thing. So I think that's, you know, it's funny along people's journey of like looking at feedback and whether you're actually asking for it or not, whether you're actually paying attention to it or not, how important that can be to your evolution.
1: Winnipeggers like to give their opinion, which is great. And no, but it's important. You want if they, because if they love your product, they will share it. And I think that's what we all should strive for is Mm. just having a really good product because Winnipeggers will take it, Manitobans will take it and share it. And I mean, people will buy boxes of bars and just give them away because they love them so much. It's great. Yeah, that's the UPS wonderful. The guy got a bar and so-and-so got a bar because, you know. Those are fun stories. They're fun stories. And mm. I love that we share like that. And Winnipeg is such a great community in Manitoba. You know, I don't know how that would translate in other cities where it's a bit more transient or we have to prove ourselves. Um, and shipping to other provinces, think about that. Distribution in other provinces that is a whole project.
0: Mm. You know, mm-hmm. you need a
1: distribution center.
0: How about your online sales? Like, has that been an evolution, especially in the last yeah. year or so, as we are yeah. in this unique time we're in right now? When the pandemic hit, and we had built a website years
1: ago and spent a lot of money, and it freaked me out to spend that much money on a website. But websites, really good e-commerce sites are expensive. Yes, they are. And I thought, you know, will spend it now. And thank God we did, because the second the pandemic hit and we had to close our store, and I would say 80% of our retailers closed. We kind of looked at each right, other. Right, it wasn't we're, just your store that closed. It yeah. was so many
0: of the local shops that you were in.
1: All our, We were like 90% wholesale at that time and everyone was closed. And I kind of looked at my team and I wanted to keep them on. Um, and I said, okay, well, let's, I'm going to create another bar. I'm going to figure this out. We're going to ha- launch a, a bar online. Something that no one's ever tasted before. And we launched the mini egg bar, literally.
0: I think I drooled when I saw that picture, It's really Cheryl. good. It's really good. It was
1: March at the time. It was good timing. Mm-hmm. Tastes amazing. People were looking for something like that. Like some type of comfort, you know, that it was going to be okay. And we got the mini eggs and we sold. That thing floated us. That bar floated. <laughs> our rent for March, April, May, like
0: literally. Maybe that's like a good tip for listeners, you know? Find a product that's kind of just spark a little. Yeah,
1: like create, like I've said this before, uncertainty should spark creativity because what else is there to do? You can sit in that space of negativity, like, oh my God, we're not going to have any sales for an indefinite amount of time, Mm. or I'm going to create something new. This is the time to do it. We're going to utilize our e-commerce. We offered free delivery, because I wanted to keep my courier in business. She's a mom and pop shop and all of their places that they were delivering foreclosed. So they had nothing to do either. And I thought if we can do a lot of sales online, free delivery in the city, no one has to leave their house. People loved it, which is great. And we've kept it. We've kept the free delivery um, as part of our business With now. a minimum threshold minimum of some $65 kind. online. Yeah. And then you'll bring it to them. Yep. And we ship across Canada for free to your home.
0: Uh, In the special boxes that you've purchased. Yes. (laughs) The very (laughs) expensive thermal lined boxes. Which is nice because then you can start to kind of permeate some other markets without having that physical presence there just yet, right? I imagine that's part of the strategy.
1: Direct to customer. Mm -hmm. And so that when we are able to go into those provinces, we're able to tell them you can now get them at So Be Safe or wherever we're going to be. And we already have a bit of a following In each province across the city, we have regular customers that do purchase online, which is great. But that Mm. took a while. That's only happened in, like, the last year. Yeah. Uh, I think people say overnight successes, and you're just killing it, and you're so busy, but the journey to get to this point has been exhausting yeah, (laughs) and a lot of work, like a lot of work. And so, and patience, a lot of patience and doing things right. They say your customers are your reality. And I think like we have the best customers. And so our reality is that every day at work is pretty cool and it's pretty fun and it's pretty positive. We don't get a lot of angry customers. And if we do, we fix it right away because they are always right. That's a are.
0: that's a big tip tip for yes. us to end on right there. That's a very big tip. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Cheryl, I'm very excited to see Thanks. your continued evolution and, and how many provinces you're going to be in soon, and and the fact that you can already get direct mm-hmm. ship to you no matter where you live mm-hmm. in our country. So that's yeah, very exciting. That's very cool. Is there anything else in your future that you want to tell us about while we have you?
1: No, I mean, just watch out for our new branding, or new packaging coming. Uh, yeah, that's just, good to know in case yeah, you're used to one look. Yeah, it's going to have a whole new look. We're still the same fun company. I can't wait till everyone reopens and we can take the masks off and do our fundraisers and connect again. I miss. I miss seeing people and being in the same space and supporting all our all our businesses freely. So yeah. I, I'm excited for that. But I have full faith we'll get there. And this is just going to be a moment in time we'll look back upon and be like, whoa,
0: <laughs> whoa, <laughs> it's indeed. <quite> there. <laughs> yeah. So Cheryl,
1: if people want to find you or Crank Energy Bars, where mm-hmm. should they go? You can find us online at crankedenergy.com. Our e-commerce site is fully functional, and then on our website under locations, we have a full list of all our retailers that we update,
0: and there's over a hundred now. So so it's great. Exciting. Yeah. Cheryl, thank you so much. That's <laughs> Thanks, our show. guys. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to learn more about our guests, visit startpodcast.ca and be sure to rate and review us wherever you're listening. If you're new to the show and want more Canadian business inspiration, subscribe before you go. Start Canada podcast is produced by your host, Margot Miller, with audio and visual creation by EventPro and support from DoNorth Systems. Start Canada podcast is powered by the Manitoba Technology Accelerator and Tech Manitoba and sponsored by Scotiabank.